Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Alyssa Rankin is the star of two national public television specials and the author of seven books, including the New York Times bestselling Mind Over Medicine. She's the founder of the Whole Health Medicine Institute. She's a physician, educator, and healthcare advocate who seeks to bridge the divides between traditional medicine, complementary medicine, and cutting-edge trauma therapy. And today, she's back on the show to chat about her latest must-read book, Sacred Medicine, a doctor's quest to unravel the mysteries of healing. Lissa, welcome. Oh my gosh, it's such a joy to be back. And as I was just saying to you, I just feel like a little, I feel a little sad that I'm not sitting next to you like I have many times before. So I miss you guys. Well, we miss you too. And we are both optimists. And I, and I think we're on the other end of COVID and, and emerging stronger, hopefully. But at any rate, it's so great to see you. Congratulations on the book, Sacred Medicine. And look, you are a prolific best-selling author. You don't need to write books, but you wrote this book and it's amazing. But I'm curious, like what, what was the why behind Sacred Medicine? Well, Sacred Medicine originally was part two of Mind Over Medicine. This literally started in 2011 when I was working on that book. Part one was going to be everything we can prove with science, everything objectifiable that we can document, you know, the scientific proof of the things that can make you miracle prone. But then, you know, as I was researching mind over medicine, I was coming across so many things that were difficult to quantify or didn't count as evidence. Like in the world of evidence-based medicine, anecdotes are do not even qualify. Like I don't care if you have 3,000 case studies of spontaneous remission, it's an anecdote. It's not evidence. And so I was coming across a lot of anecdotes and subjective clues, but they, there wasn't, they really didn't count as evidence. And so part one was going to be everything I can prove with evidence. And part two was going to be the more subjective aspects of healing that maybe we can't prove as science, but that I, I also think are sort of breadcrumbs leading us, you know, those subjective things often become science later. And if we're not paying attention to those subjective aspects of healing, then we're potentially missing something. So you know, I, that was going to be part two, but <laughs> the manuscript strip got really unwieldy. And at some point, my team was kind of like, Lisa, this is two books. And so we separated it into Mind Over Medicine and then what was going to be Sacred Medicine. But I realized then, well, if this is going to be a separate book, I should really do my research. And that's going to require a long time, 10 years of travel around the world, you know, working with shamans in Peru and Qigong masters from China and Balinese healers and Hawaiian kahunas and energy healers and faith healers from all over the world, cutting edge trauma therapists and gurus and mind body medicine doctors. And I had a child, I had a young child at the time. So I was like, I can't just do my eat, pray, love, pick up everything, go for a year and study all of this. I'm going to have to chunk it out. So here I am. Well, I'm glad you did it. It is the perfect sequel to Mind Over Medicine, which is still one of my all-time favorite books in the space. And I find myself recommending over and over throughout the years. It stands the test of time. And 
Oh, so, you know, do you know I revised it? I rewrote Mind Over Medicine completely. Oh, really? In oh, wow. 2020. Well, yeah. I still like, I, I like the original. <laughs> um, I'll have to reread it. I learned a lot. I'm... I think a lot of it comes across in this book. And one of the things I found to be really interesting, the paradoxes of healing. Can, yeah. can you elaborate on the paradoxes of healing? Well, one of the reasons that I rewrote Mind Over Medicine is because I found myself making a lot of disclaimers. I've been working with Mind Over Medicine as the main text for training doctors in the Whole Health Medicine Institute for nine years now. We've been teaching doctors and other healthcare providers and some cutting-edge therapists how to work with the six steps to healing yourself as a facilitator for people with chronic illness or terminal illness. And yet when I work with that material, I was often making all these disclaimers because I no longer agreed 100% with what I wrote in the original version of Mind Over Medicine, not because anything I wrote was wrong, but because there were some places where I only told half of the truth. So for example, you can heal yourself and you can't do it alone. That's a paradox of healing. And in Mind Over Medicine, I can say, I said, you can heal yourself. And I said, you're going to need support. But I didn't explicitly make it clear. So more paradoxes of healing, for example. Conventional medicine can save lives. And conventional medicine is the third highest cause of death in the U.S., at least before COVID. Now COVID is the third cause of death in the U.S. Keep an open mind. And don't be so open that your brains fall out. And oh, my gosh, did people's brains fall out during the pandemic? Like, I'm all for keeping an open mind and, you know, being available to things that are in the subjective realm of healing, things that are still a mystery, things that science has yet to validate or prove. But I'm also a scientist and I believe in critical thinking. And I was absolutely shocked at what happened to the wellness industry and the mind-body world and the yoga communities and the sort of non-dual spiritual communities and the energy healers. And like literally half of my, half of the people that followed me on, fan, on Facebook, like half of my colleagues, my business colleagues, they went just batshit crazy during the, and I, when I say that, I'm very sensitive. I, I really believe, no, I, I mean, I'm checking myself because I really believe that people who got indoctrinated into the cult of QAnon or who believed conspiracy theories. I really do believe that's a trauma symptom and all trauma deserves our compassion. And I never want to call any trauma symptom crazy. So that was just a part of me that said that. And then another part of, another part of me is feeling compassionate. <laughs> but there was a lot of craziness going on. And, and like, yeah. with that said, I think a lot of people are listening and nodding. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. You know, the beauty of your work, and I think, and, and something that's very important to us here at Mind Buddy Green is we believe in the nuance. Yeah. We believe that Western can save lives, but we also believe that Western is far from perfect and can do a lot of damage. We believe that Eastern, you know, can save lives, but also Eastern is far from perfect. And the future of health lies in the middle. It's the blend of both. It's the nuance. Yet we find ourselves, I think, in, in a post-COVID world, more divided there. Yeah. And something you talk about in the book and my question, you know, how, how do we, in your words, bridge the camps? Well, this is what my work has been about since I left the hospital in 2007. I mean, I really, well, that's not fair. I'll say since 2009, because when I first left the hospital, 
I had been indoctrinated in a very sort of cultic kind of brainwashing into the cult of conventional medicine, if you want to call that, or the cult of skepticism, <laughs> or the cult of science. My father was a doctor. My mother was a fundamentalist Christian. And so in my upbringing, in my indoctrination in my family, in our cult of five, my, you know, everything was either in the realm of, you know, religion or science. And any crossover was like to my father, any crossover was charlatanism and quackery. And to my mother, it was the work of the devil. So, you know, it was like never science and spirituality should never meet in my family. And so I, I came out, I, I, I joined the cult of conventional medicine. And I really, at 30, I was dogmatic, absolutely dogmatic, having been brainwashed into the Northwestern way. So it wasn't just conventional medicine. It was the Northwestern way, which was way better than the Harvard way. So, you know, very arrogant. I was a little whippersnapper. I was like challenging everybody at my hospital at 30 years old, like calling meetings to prove that they were not practicing evidence-based medicine and they were not up to speed on the Northwestern way. And I was just very narcissistic at that age and very certain that I knew the way. And so when I left the hospital in 2007, very disillusioned, just like a lot of people are kind of coming out of cultic environments right now or coming out of sort of the cult of the new age or the cult of QAnon and sort of realizing that they've been conned or that they've only been taught half of the truth. The, and so I kind of came out very disillusioned about conventional medicine and very angry at how abusive it was. I, I mean, I had been criminally abused by my medical school professors and residency professors. I should have called the police. Like, I should have pressed charges and people should be in jail for what was done to me in the name of training me to be a good doctor. So I really had to get in therapy and do a lot of recovery around my own cultic indoctrination. But then once I was in, once I was the, like well on my way to my own recovery and I was off all my medications and I was no longer suicidal, then, you know, I was able to really see the blessings of my training and the real magic and miracles and technology of conventional medicine and to really appreciate what a fabulous education I had been given and what an amazing thing medical science is. And it was only half of a paradox. And there was a whole other side of healing that I was not trained. Nobody in medical school is trained to, to understand these things. And so my research for Mind Over Medicine and then Sacred Medicine was my attempt to learn everything that they didn't teach me in medical school that I should have been taught. And I'm not just talking about, you know, food as medicine and the importance of healthy movement and exercise and, and meditation and sort of the, the typical things that, you know, when I go to Mind Body Green events, most of the people there are talking about the things, the more traditional, you know, healthy behavior kind of things. But my particular area of interest, because of my, my experience in Marin County, seeing that there were a whole lot of people that were doing, that had seen the best doctors at Stanford and UCSF. And they were raw vegan, taking 100 supplements, seeing their acupuncturist and chiropractor, like going to yoga class, meditating every day. And they were the sickest people I had ever worked with as a doctor. And so I became very interested in like, okay, what else? And 
lots of people have written great books about nutrition. Lots of people have written great books about yoga. And that's all awesome. I drink my green juice. I do yoga. But there was a, it felt like there was this rabbit hole. I'm, I feel emotional when I talk about this because it was, I remember the moment of sort of standing at the rabbit hole. And it started at Esalen. And I, was, I decided I'm going to go down there and I'm going to see what's down there. And I had no idea how traumatic it would wind up being for me. That rabbit hole was full of dark, shadowy, abusive people. And I've spent tens of thousands of dollars on my own therapy from the trauma of studying this material. And I also found some really serious holy grails that I am incredibly grateful to have had the privilege. And when I say privilege, I mean like, Aside from not being male, I am at the very top of the privilege categories. I am white, you know, socioeconomically privileged, cisgender, heterosexual, you know, highly educated doctor kind of privilege. And I recognize that the healing journey that I've been able to be on has been an extraordinarily high level of privilege to even just be able to afford to do everything that I've been able to do. But I feel like I kind of went on this journey like, trying to find the tools in the world's medicine bag that people maybe with less privilege can't necessarily repeat the journey that I've been on. And I, I tried to really use my power and platform and privilege to bring these tools to everybody else, especially during the pandemic. So I feel very, very grateful that I had the opportunity to do this, especially because unexpectedly I wound up being mauled by a dog in the middle of this journey and having to use it for my own healing and feeling very grateful that I know now what they didn't teach me in medical school and that I had an extraordinary outcome that doctors said was impossible. And I'm also very sensitive to people who don't have extraordinary outcomes. And I tried to really touch on that in the book as well. Well, your story is so powerful. And, you know, the story specifically about your journey in Marin you know, where you are seeing the, the world's most privileged, healthy people. They're seeing the best doctors, they're eating the best diets, they're taking care of themselves, and yet they're so sick. And then when they start talking, it's very clear that there's emotional, spiritual distress. And that's like a big part of your journey. And I, I love this idea, which you go into in sacred medicine, that this idea, look, look, science is, is very binary. It's very black and white, but you say, and I couldn't agree more with this statement, science only appeals to our mental intelligence. That's and right. if we solely relied on our mental intelligence, we are ignoring our intuitive intelligence and our emotional intelligence. And our somatic intelligence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and invariably yeah. there's tension. Like you need to use your brain. You need to like, okay, you got to use your brain, but you need to listen to your gut. And, and there's a lot, there's so much there we don't know. So how do you think about balancing it all when someone's facing an illness, when they're dealing with trauma, when they've got an obstacle, how do we balance it all? Well, you know, that, and that goes back to some of the paradoxes of healing because like one of them is trust your intuition and follow the science and apply critical thinking. We saw so many people at the beginning of COVID, especially in the new age world, that were saying, I'm trusting my intuition and my intuition says COVID is a hoax. 
and Bill Gates is trying to, you know, con control us and, and that, and I get that. And, and part of what I really was sensitive to is that when people have had a particular kind of early developmental trauma, specifically it, the first year of life, not having adequate, healthy symbiosis connection with the birth mother. And that can happen for any number of reasons, because somebody's adopted, because, you know, they, they have a surrogate mother and they're raised by a gay family because their own birth mother is, you know, psychologically wounded and checked out and has postpartum depression or, you know, they're born premature and they're in an incubator or their mother is sick or dies. There's any number of reasons why the mother does not bond with the baby in the first year of life. And the people who have that particular wound have a nervous system. They have a handicapped nervous system. They don't develop their nervous system normally. And that makes their intuition, gives them certain inclinations towards spiritual gifts, but it also is a, the most severe kind of trauma. And if any of your listeners are familiar with Stephen Porges and polyvagal theory, we talk about the different states of the parasympathetic nervous system that rest and relax part of the nervous system. But part of the parasympathetic nervous system is the, the dorsal vagal branch of the nervous system, which is the most severe threat, like when the tiger is chasing the gazelle and the gazelle is about to get eaten and the gazelle drops and kind of plays dead. That's the dorsal vagal, like near-death response. Because the, obviously the gazelle doesn't want to be in their body when they're going to get eaten. That's a really good time to disembody and dissociate and get out of the body. And people who have that early connection wound, they, they never really embody. They never come all the way in the body. So they have access to this sort of multidimensional realms. And they can be very intuitive. And they can have lots, be very visionary and very psychic. Some of, the, some of the best healers have that particular wound. But the problem is they also are very intimacy avoidant. It's a severe threat. Intimacy, real intimacy with humans can be a, feel like a severe threat to the nervous system. And so the problem is the body can experience a severe threat in the nervous system, and then the mind makes up an inaccurate story. So if you say, I'm trusting my intuition, when the body is in a dorsal vagal threat because of maybe something like a pandemic. And then the mind makes up a paranoid story. It's not a true story. So it's not really their intuition. It's a paranoid story that the mind is making up. In polyvagal theory, we say state creates story. So if the nervous system state is a severe threat in the nervous system and that nervous system threat is accurate, the nervous system is in a severe threat, but the story the mind makes up is not accurate. So saying trust your intuition for somebody who has that wound, that's not necessarily a good idea. <laughs> the thing they might call intuition is not necessarily accurate. So it's really important to also apply critical thinking, use your mental intelligence, read the science, like check yourself. So anybody who says, I have a direct link to God, and I am 100% accurate in my intuition, it's like, run. That's what cult leaders say. Like, <laughs> do not trust those people. <laughs> so I, what we can trust, however, is what I call your four whole health intelligences. And you named them mental intelligence, emotional intelligence, intuitive intelligence, and somatic intelligence. And I kind of think of it 
like we all have this divine self. I, I wrote a book called The Daily Flame about your inner pilot light. And we I call it your inner pilot light. You know, Christians call it Christ consciousness. Buddhists call it Buddha nature. Psychologists call it self with a capital S. All the traditions have a different name for it. But we all have this wise inner healer, doctor, therapist, good mommy, good daddy, God self inside of us, all of us. And it does not ever get damaged. It is as Mark Nepo says, the incorruptible spot of grace where we were each first touched by God. And we all have that. And that aspect of our being can be like the conductor of the symphony of our intelligences. So if we're able to check in, let's say, for example, in the, the first chapter of the book, I told the story of how I had this injury and I suddenly looked down and I had a chunk this big of my inner thigh right over my femoral artery right by my groin, taken out of my leg by a pit bull. And there's suddenly a big hole and it is this deep. And thank God it didn't get my femoral artery. But I didn't know that in that moment where I looked down and I'm like, oh shit, I've been mauled by a dog and I could die. And in that moment, there's a decision that has to be made, right? What am I going to do? And the owner of the dog is freaking out and he's going, do I call 911? Do we get an ambulance? Do I take you to the hospital? And in that moment, I'm getting this really clear hit from my intuitive intelligence that is saying, don't go to the ER. And then my mental intelligence is saying, that is stupid. That is a stupid decision. Like that is, that cannot be trusted. <laughs> that is a very bad idea. Right. And then, so it's, these things happen quick when you're in an emergency and anybody who's ever been in a real life threatening crisis knows that sometimes we get really fast input. And so I was already halfway through writing this book, well, working, researching this book. And so it was this very quick, let me check in with all my intelligences. And the guidance became very clear of what to do. And the first thing I did is I took a photo of my injury. I sent it to my, one of my best friends who is an emergency room physician, who's also an energy healer. And I said, Ed, I'm getting a hit that I shouldn't go to the ER, but that sounds stupid to me. Can you help me do this from home? And he said, yes. And I instantly, my whole system relaxed and I was able to, okay, what do I do? Okay. Go to your bathtub, lavage the wounds, call and make an appointment with a plastic surgeon within the next 24 hours to get a tetanus shot. I'm going to call in an antibiotic for you. Okay, cool. Help. And then I was on the phone with my trauma therapist. I don't want PTSD from this. I don't want a dog phobia. Help me do emergency PTSD prevention. And then I was on the phone with my energy healer to say, okay, this just happened. Here's the photo. Help me. And then I was on my the phone with the indigenous healer who was like, okay, do this. Here's the bear root. And then I was on, my on the phone with my integrative medicine doctor who was like, take these supplements do this diet. And I was literally like within an hour, I had my prescription. I knew what I needed to do. And I was using everything from all the toolboxes. And I, I, I won't show you because it's really close to my, my private parts, but it's all really good. impressive. It's a really beautiful wound. It's a really beautiful scar. And I, the doctors had told me there's no way this is closing on its own. It's going to need, you're going to need multiple skin grafts, multiple surgeries. And I didn't do that. But I also didn't deny Western medicine. I went to a wound care specialist who was a 30-year meditator. I was referred there by my ER doctor 
friend and he said, she'll take good care of you. She'll give you whatever Western medicine has that isn't surgery. And she's on board to be your partner. And she was like, well, I've never seen anything like that close on its own, but you seem to know what you're doing and I'm going to, I'm going to be your partner. And it closed in four months and it was a journey. So, and I wouldn't recommend that to most of your listeners. No. Like I've, no, I would say you, go to the I ER. Will also, go to the ER. You are a trained medical professional and you have. Uh, I'm a trained medical professional who called a trained <laughs> medical professional and made that decision yes. very intentionally. And I wouldn't tell yes. anybody else to do that. Yes. But I, I, you know, I'm going to come back to, I think an interesting theme, you know, hearing you speak, you talk about Christianity, you talk about God, you talk about faith, you talk about prayer. And so let's spend a little bit of time on, on bridging the gaps. You talk about growing up and it was, on one hand it was science and then there was spirituality and they, it was completely on the opposite sides of the fence. And so the science of prayer, you mentioned Larry Dossie in the book and perusing PubMed on this very subject. So, so what did you uncover on the subject of, of, of prayer and what does science say about prayer? You know, it's funny you say that because I, I also was indoctrinated in the cult of my mother's fundamentalist religion, and I left that cult when I was 18. But that also, but I never left God. Like some part of me, even though I had a lot of spiritual abuse, I never lost my faith. And I'm really grateful for that because so many people that are, you know, have experienced spiritual abuse in cultic dynamics lose their faith. And I'm so glad I, some aspect of me that I would, I would call my inner pilot light, like kept that beautiful part of my religion and didn't, and I never lost that, but I also never found like another path until I found internal family systems, which if I had to identify as having uh, a religion, I would say it's IFS. There's a whole chapter about internal family systems in sacred medicine, but IFS really is like when we were talking about the having the conductor that is managing those whole health intelligences, like when my injury happened, I have all these different parts in me and that are saying that are competing. They're polarized, right? One part's saying you should go to the ER and another part is saying, don't go to the ER. And what do you do to manage those polarizations? So anyway, in internal family systems, we have a self with a capital S or an inner pilot light that is the leader of all those different parts. And so for me, my spirituality, that is my spirituality is the way in which my, the God in me manages the traumatized parts, the little inner children in me, and then can relate to the God in you and is connected to everything and the whole planet, that there's a God in everything. And I'm very much an animist in that way also. I believe there's a God in the mountain and a goddess in the lake. And I'm very sort of inclined towards indigenous spirituality in that way. And almost every tradition, every almost every indigenous tradition that I worked with in sacred medicine just reinforced that, that kind of spirituality in me. And so when we talk about prayer, if you ask about the science, like there is a nail in the coffin Prayer does not work. And I, I talk about this extensively in, in sacred medicine. The, the sort of landmark study, there was a big headline. I forget which magazine published it, but it, there was a big headline that was something like, don't pray for me, because the people in the prayer group actually got worse. 
than the people who were not prayed for. So it was kind of a joke, right? Don't pray for me. It's like, it's going to hurt me. But I will tell you that from my spirituality, I don't pray the way other pe- the, the way I was taught to pray in my fundamentalist religion. The, the cult of my mother was you pray with an attachment to a certain outcome, right? Like you pray for someone. I, if you have, if you're sick, Jason, then I pray that you're cured. And I don't pray that. So one of the, one of the paradoxes of healing in my book is be clear in your intention to heal and surrender attachment to outcomes. So I pray the way my spiritual teacher taught me to pray. My, I am very lucky. I'm very lucky that I found a very good spirit. Well, I, I can't even say that. A very good spiritual teacher was delivered to me in a very magical way that I talk about in my book, The Anatomy of a Calling, right after I left the hospital. Her name is Rachel Naomi Remen, and she wrote a book called Kitchen Table Wisdom that six million people have read. And she is a medical doctor who was trained at Esalen in the 1960s in the humanistic medicine program. And one of the things she taught me was how to pray. And the way she taught me to pray was, let us pray for that which is most right. And to recognize that we don't, our small, limited human brains can't possibly know what is most right in the bigger picture. We know what we want. And this is why I don't believe in or practice the law of attraction. And I actually think it's a very dangerous way of thinking. And I have a whole section in the book about the law of attraction and spiritual bypassing and why I think that's, you know, it's not that there isn't a baby in that bathwater. There is a beautiful baby in the, that idea. But that's another paradox of healing is like believe in magic and miracles and avoid indulging in magical thinking and denial. <laughs> or again, you know, your disease is not your fault and your healing journey is your responsibility. Like stay hopeful and be realistic. Your thoughts influence your reality and your thoughts cannot control reality. Like all of those, there is the baby in that bathwater, but it's some real muddy bathwater around the law of attraction. And so the way most people pray is sort of a law of attraction way of praying. It's like, I'm going to manifest, I'm going to use the power of my spirituality to manifest the outcome that I want. And I don't believe that. I don't believe that is a law, first of all, because if it was, we'd all get everything we wanted. And I think it's very grandiose and narcissistic to think that if I do if I make a vision board hard enough or say enough affirmations or, you know, put my spiritual power on creating a certain outcome and I get it, then I did it myself. Like, that's very grandiose. Like, that's very narcissistic. And I think the new age is full of a lot of grandiosity and inflation and narcissism. And we really saw that during the pandemic at the extreme levels of narcissistic paranoia, delusion, and mental illness, severe mental illness. So I do think we have power and I don't think we're in control. And so when it comes to prayer, I think loving, allowing our hearts to love and care and have altruistic motives and be together in community, in service to people who are suffering is absolutely powerful. And I have a whole chapter about Lourdes. 
the Catholic pilgrimage site in France. I visited Lourdes as part of this research, and I was absolutely in tears from the magnificence of thousands of people who come to Lourdes every day to gather together in a resonant field with the intention to heal, with their hearts splayed open, like on their knees in front of the Virgin Mary and each other in this incredibly vulnerable way. People have come from all over the world. They've spent their last penny to like beg for healing. And it, it's the opposite of that inflated grandiosity. It's so humble. These people are literally on their knees, like with their heads on the ground together in this humble place of surrender. And, and, and Lourdes has been documenting medical miracles for years. And people, you know, have proven before and after, you know, outcomes. And it's also true that lots of people go to Lourdes and die. So it's not, it's not simple. It's incredibly nuanced. So it sounds like, suffice to say, you would make some edits to one of an all-time favorite of many people, may she rest in peace, Louise Hayes, You Can Heal Your Life. I, <laughs> I wouldn't even try to edit. I don't agree with really anything in that book, to be honest. And I, I say that gently because I was very grateful. Hay House was quite good to me for two of my books, but I have been extremely disappointed in their behavior during the pandemic and their unwillingness to um, speak out against some of their authors who, in my opinion, have blood on their hands. Those who are in Surgeon General Vivek Murthy's disinformation dozen who are responsible for 65% of the medical misinformation about COVID on the internet. And so I, I came out sort of publicly on the Conspirituality podcast saying that I just don't agree with um, that kind of teaching. Sure. And, ag and again, there, it's not that there isn't a morsel of truth in what Louise Hay says, but a whole lot of people have been very harmed by thinking that they can cure their disease by changing their thoughts and doing nothing else. And a lot of those people have died. I mean, I, kn I know some of those people. I know people who were so convinced I created this cancer with my thoughts, and therefore I can cure this cancer with my thoughts, and I have gone to their funerals. So I don't agree with that line of thinking. And, and again, I think as you so articulately stated, spirituality is an important component. And we, we oh, still, huge. we can't yet understand the role spirituality plays in, in, in disease. And I think we'd all agree it plays a significant role, but again, as you think about healing, you can't just completely discount the brain no. and science. And, and you've got to take everything into consideration. You can't just, you can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, and my spirituality has been everything. Like my commitment to the spiritual path has been relentless, like my whole life. And it has been a very difficult journey. But again, we have to be so careful because even going to Lourdes, like, what are the stories that we tell ourselves about why some people get a miracle at Lourdes and other people don't? Like, are they special? Are they chosen by God? Are they in some way um, more deserving of a miracle? Like, none of that is part of my spirituality. That doesn't fit. Like, any spirituality that doesn't include radical empathy for the suffering of others 
without trying to explain it away in any way, like it isn't, does not fit. Like if social justice is not part of your spirituality, like get rid of it. If your spirituality inflates you and makes you grandiose and think you're better than other people and you look down on other people like, oh, we're the special spiritual people and they're like the muggles that we don't, <laughs> that we <laughs> like, like that's narcissism. That's not spirituality. So I was lucky in a way that even though my mother was in this sort of fundamentalist religion, I had three ministers in my family who were not part of that fundamentalist religion. And they were all social justice activists and pastors. And I have been really touched by like one of my best friends. And I would love to see him on your podcast is Jeffrey Rediger, who is a oh, Harvard. Yeah, we, had, we had him. You oh, introduced you us. Oh, the pandemic. Oh, he's amazing. Okay. Love, love oh him. Gosh. Love him. Love him. I amazing. Mean, Everyone should listen to that show. We'll put it in the show he's notes. He's one of my amazing best friends. Jeffrey yeah. Rediger wrote a book called Cured. He is a, he went to seminary at Princeton and he went to, he's a Harvard Medical School faculty, head of the psych hospital, McLean Hospital at Harvard. And he's spent 17 years rigorously, medic, like rigorously researching people who had medically documented before and after cures to try to see, is there anything we can do that is within our power with critical thinking and science? But is there anything within our power that we can do to make ourselves more miracle prone? And he ultimately, he and I both, and Kelly Turner has done the same thing with her research around radical remission and radical hope. And Kelly and, and Jeff and I have been comparing notes for many years. Kelly and I spoke at one of your events, and we've known each other for a, over a decade. And the three of us have talked about this extensively and really believe that spirituality is the main thing that those people have in common, that they are deeply connected to that inner pilot light. And they sometimes have, and they are trusting the guidance of that part of them to accept or reject conventional medicine in certain places to add other things to their prescription to sometimes include spiritual healing or trauma therapy or other types of, of healing modalities. And Jeff describes it really well. He says that the main thing that those people that he interviewed had in common was that they completely rewrote their story of self. That they And that was because of their spirituality often that they underwent a complete transformation. In the IFS world, we might say they went from being parts-led to being self-led. To, to, in other words, rather than allowing themselves to continue to live a life based on their traumatic conditioning, they went on a journey to heal those parts and treat those parts and get their traumas to release those traumatic burdens so that the the God in all of us can take the lead in our healing journeys. And mysterious things happen when we do that. So for example, Gabor Mate, who I wrote about and who I've taught with, oh, that's so funny. I just, I just turned to the part that says when the body says no. You know, Gabor Mate in When the Body Says No wrote a lot about certain personality characteristics that put people at risk of certain types of diseases. And I think we have to be so careful when we talk about that. And Gabor and I have talked about this extensively and sort of, and Gabor wrote the foreword to my, my book. I, I really appreciated it because he really got this book. But one of the things that he talked about a lot is that if we are led by the parts of us that don't know how to say no, and we're just compliant, people-pleasing, approval-seeking, nice people, that's actually really bad for our health. In fact, I've come to make a, a hypothesis that I really don't like 
which is that assholes tend to live longer. Like, because they're, <laughs> they take really good care of themselves. Like, they are selfish. And they are self-absorbed and self-centered. And they are doing what is good for themselves. And these people often live to be like 95 years old. And the really, oh, really compliant, codependent, overgiving, self-neglecting, self-depleting people who can't say no, who prioritize everybody else to their own detriment, they often get cancer young, they get autoimmune disorders, they, you know, and there's, we don't really have good evidence, good scientific evidence yet to say if you treat those traumas and change that behavior, you'll reverse your illness. That's next. That's what we need to study next. But we have very clear, we have a lot of clear data linking some of those tendencies towards illness. Well, it, it, look, it, it... In some respect, it makes a lot of sense. You know, one could be, you know, very focused on taking care of others because internally they, they maybe don't want to take care of themselves or they're trying to overcome for some trauma or what, what's the saying in our world? You tend to teach what the lesson that you most need to hear. Teach what you need to learn. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and so building off of that, I thought something was so interesting. You know, and it's a cliche in our world. You hear it all the time. It's all energy. And you reference a quote from Bill Bankston, who wrote The Energy Cure. And he says, it's important to distinguish between intention and attention. attention. Can, can you unpack that? I thought it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's, I, I want, before I answer that, I have a part that just wants to add a little empathy side note. If anybody listened to what I just said about people pleasing and taking care of other people. I just want to name, I am one of those people. I was traumatized in that way. I did not get, I was the parentified child who had to take care of my mother who didn't get to be a baby and didn't get to be a child. And by the time I was four, I was fully like the caregiver for my mother. And almost every doctor, I've been working with doctors and therapists as clients for nine years. And almost every doctor and therapist has that wound. And almost every healer has that wound and almost everybody in a service industry where they're, you know, working really hard to take care of other people has that wound. And it's a really big wound and it's incredibly difficult to treat wound. So I just wanted, before I rushed past that, I just wanted sure. to have that sort of trigger alert of like, it is treatable. We can reverse it. And there's a beautiful story in sacred medicine about one of the doctors that was my client who did a demo with Dick Schwartz, the founder of Internal Family Systems. She had recurrent cancer, and he was working with her around the part of her that throws her under the bus instead of letting her take care of herself. Even And, and so this cancer part was saying, well, she needs cancer in order to prioritize her own needs. And so Dick was working with, hey, can we help her get her needs met in other ways without cancer? Please, can we, can the cancer... Can we treat the cancer with conventional medicine? Can we treat the cancer so that it doesn't have to come back and kill her so that she can prioritize herself? And it was a huge moment for her to be like, oh, my God, that that is exactly what I do. I throw myself under the bus to, to take care of everybody else. And it's really common. So I just wanted to say that because I know your audience is full of people who throw themselves under the bus to take care of everybody else. And we do. We get a hit of... We get a hit of meaning. We get a sense of purpose. We get a, we get, we feel better about ourselves because we're helpful and 
you know, we're curing cancer, we're saving lives, we're, we're treating people's traumas, whatever, we're helping everybody else, but often to our own condition. Yeah. Yeah. And look, if you're feeling a little blue or depressed, one of the best things you can possibly do is volunteer. Absolutely. Help someone. Absolutely. Help someone. So I, I get, there, there's a paradox. There, there's definitely there a, paradox. a paradox. Like you need to be a good person. You need to take care of other people, but at the same time, not at the detriment of your own well-being. That must be prioritized. That's right. And it is one of the paradoxes of healing in my book because, again, being able to find that sacred reciprocity using, so in, in the Karo's tradition in Peru, they call it Aini, A-Y-N-E. And it's that equal balance of giving and receiving. And they do all these nature rituals as part of their spirituality because they believe that we take so much from nature every day, just breathing fresh air, drinking fresh water, like having gravity keep us from floating away, like that we should be in such gratitude to nature every day that if we are not expressing that gratitude in really ritualized ways, that we will get sick because we'll be out of Aini. And so you know, the way I see that is we, we can easily get out of Aini. And when I'm taking care of doctors, I kind of make a joke with them and I tell them, okay, all of us are putting our attention on everybody else all the time, but look, let's see how long we can only breathe out. And we do a little exercise where we breathe out. And of course, everybody starts laughing because you can't breathe out without breathing in for very long. We, we will die. And so I tell them that this program, part of what we do when we do Heal the Healer work is we have to learn to breathe in. And so, and some people need to learn to breathe out because some people, like I said, are very narcissistic and they're only breathing in and they need to learn to breathe out. <laughs> so all of us have to find that sacred reciprocity of giving and receiving, breathing in and breathing out. And especially people who have that wound of, of the parentified child, we have to, um, let go of some of that hit that we get off of helping others and take care of the parts inside of us that feel worthless and helpless and powerless and not good enough and ashamed and terrified. Because if we were little children who didn't get to be children, those are really traumatized parts. We, we won't stop that compulsive behavior unless we treat those parts. And that's the whole part three of sacred medicine is about trauma healing and the importance of doing that deep dive. And without going there, because it's a whole other conversation. I know that's like, a whole other it, conversation. It makes, it makes me think of the trauma, the collective trauma coming out of COVID children. Yeah. And, and it's just, we won't go there. We don't have time for that. Yeah. And the last chapter is about collective trauma. But I didn't answer your question. Yeah. About intention and attention. I think it's so fascinating. It's really important. So Bill, for anybody who doesn't know, William Bankston, he wrote a book called The Energy Cure, and he's got a Sounds True audio program that teaches how to do his type of, he calls it hocus pocus, hands-on healing. He has been a rigorous scientist curing cancer in mice for 30 years using a technique he calls cycling. And he has taught skeptical graduate students who do not believe in energy healing and think they're part of a gullibility study, how to do this cycling. So you don't have to be special. Anybody can do it. And he has, his research is very interesting. And he, I had more fun. I had more fun researching Bill Bankston than anybody else in the whole book. We spent 10 years and he is absolutely hilarious. And I learned a great deal. But part of what he said, he gets very triggered by most energy healers 
because he said it's, you know, they they go into this whole ritual of like, I have to light my sage and ring my bell and put my intention on the patient or whatever. And he's like, none of that matters. He said, what matters most is getting out of the way because healing is absolutely happens through humans, but humans can't make it happen. It's the exact opposite. So he said, you know, it's you make the intention and then cycling is about like, it almost sounds like a law of attraction practice because you're mentally visualizing like 20 egoic desires, like 20 things that you want that are totally selfish. One of which might be, I want to cure this person's cancer. It's like a totally selfish desire. And then you do this sort of mental spinning, cycling these selfish desires while you put your hands on the cage of mice and get out of the way. So he says that it's actually the whole purpose of cycling is to help you let go, to surrender, to get out of the way, to almost busy your mind. It's, I almost think of it like, you know, throwing the dog of the mind a bone so that healing can happen. And, and Bill says, no, it's not exactly like that. That's not quite it. But it's almost like you set the intention and then you move on to the next intention and the next intention and the next intention in the mind so that you're not obsessing about the intention and that obsessing about the intention does the opposite of healing. So it's like, make the intention, let it go. Make the intention and let it, like make the intention 10%. No, according to cycling, 5%. Make the intention 5% or less and 95% let go. And that's why I think like a lot of what I really want people to get out of this is like, don't obsess about your healing journey. Like the obsessing about it actually makes you sicker. I, I love that because I think when it comes to an intention and attention, it's also bigger than healing. I think this is the That's struggle right. we all have. I have, you know, any type A who wants to accomplish anything, you set a goal and you work your ass off and you do the work and you accomplish the goal and you visualize it and you pray about whatever, whatever process yep. you have. Yeah. But there's the tension of you need to set the intention. You got to do the work, but then you also have to surrender. And I think it's so hard. I struggle it's with this all the so time. It's so hard. And, and there are some things that it's harder for than others. Like it's one thing to say, I have an intention. I'm going to write this book called Sacred Medicine. It's going to be the sequel to Mind Over Medicine. I'm going to go around the world for 10 years and I'm going to in interview all these people. I'm going to employ my power and my discipline towards making this happen and manifesting this outcome, right? And that is actually something, given that I have six books behind me and a really fancy agent and a really good reputation in the publishing industry, that is an intention that I am likely to be able to kind of control in a way. Although I, I will put out there, Rachel Cargill, who I quoted in the book, said, did you manifest that or is that your privilege? And I am very aware that one of the reasons that I have had the success that I've had in the publishing industry is because of my privilege and because I look a certain way and am a certain color and have a certain education and that publishers like that. And it's not fair. And I'm absolutely 100% behind Rebecca Baruki, who has started a publishing company to get book deals for marginalized and oppressed populations that might not otherwise have that privilege. But with that disclaimer, because there's nuance, and, and I will add to that, you are also 
an extraordinarily talented writer. And I, I remember when you would submit pieces of my video green, and I would sit <laughs> next to our editor and I'm, oh my God, they would come in so fast. It would be like in a real topic that just happened half hour later, boom, there would be, <laughs> I don't know how many thousand words from you that required no edit. So you are a prolific. Oh, thank you. Well, I have put in my, no joke, 100,000 hours. I've been a writer since I was a little child. I got offered my first book deal when I was 11. So that's just a matter of practice. And I would say to any writers out there, writers write, you have to write every day, just write. And it gets easier over time. So thank you for that. But in other words, manifesting this book is something I have some control over. But as an OBGYN who's retired, I can tell you that th my type A patients who were trying to get pregnant were the most infertile because that there are things like pregnancy that you absolutely cannot control. And the more you try to control them, the more you interfere with the natural process. And so for my infertile patients, for example, I, even back when I was doing practicing OBGYN, I would do this, what I would call the God box, the putting things in the God box. Like we have to take this sincere yearning to become a mother, to become the biological, the mother of a biological child of your own genes. We have to take that sincere, very vulnerable longing, and it's so vulnerable. And we have to somehow hand it to something larger and say, here's my wish. I want to be a mom so bad. And I've tried everything. I've tried IVF. I've, tried, I've done everything I can control. I've prayed. I've put it on my vision board. I've done every type A thing. I've seen the acupuncturist. I've taken the herbs. I've done everything in my control, just like those Marin County health nets. I've done everything in my control, and I would say, this is where you have to turn it over. We don't, let us pray for that which is most right. We don't know what that is, and it's a mystery. And my patients would bawl. They would bawl their eyes out because they would have a story from their mind that said, if I quit trying, if I surrender, I'm resigning, and I'm giving up, and then I'll never get pregnant, and I'm never going to be a mom, or I'm going to have to adopt, or I'm going to have to whatever. And I can't tell you how many of those people, after we had that emotional release of the fear and disappointment and that attachment, Tosha Silver says, the very act of grasping for the feather creates the wind current that pushes it away. And I can't tell you how many doctors in my program and things like this, we put it in the God box, we ritualize it. We feel the emotions, we let those emotions move. And a month later they call me and they're like, you're not gonna believe it, I'm fucking pregnant. Oops, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. All, all, all good, <laughs> all good. And again, it's not a way to trick the law of attraction. We don't surrender so we can get what we want. We surrender because we really genuinely know, don't know what is that which is most right. Maybe there's some reason to not have a baby. We don't know. And it's so difficult. And this is the primary spiritual practice that I have been using for many years. And it's part of why I rewrote Mind Over Medicine, because the original six steps, surrender was step six in the six steps to healing yourself. So give and us the new ones. Give us the new six steps. I want to know the new six <laughs> steps in honor. Well, it was tricky because... I, I went to a Tosha Silver workshop right after Mind Over Medicine came out and I sat in the back of the wor workshop and I bawled my eyes out because I was like, oh no, I messed up Mind Over Medicine. And I went to the teacher who I had just met and there's a whole synchronicity of how I ended up there. And I went to the teacher and I said, Tosha, I just did something horrible. I just wrote a New York Times bestselling book. 
and I put surrender as step six. I said, surrender should have been step one. And she was like, of course, sweetheart, surrender should have been step one. And then she's like, I think I was your mother in a past life. We should go hiking. And I was like, how did I end up here? But I started teaching the six steps to the doctors in our program by saying, if we can remember and if our patients are on board, we should start the very minute they come in and we have a scary diagnosis that we have to give them. If they're on board and they have any access to their spirituality, we should stop, start right away with saying, let us, if you're open, let us pray for that which is most right. And we're entering into the mystery and this healing journey has an unknown outcome. And we don't know what that which is most right is. But I want you to know that I'm here and I'm with you and I'm going to bring the best of critical thinking and science and medical technology. And I'm also going to trust the journey and trust your whole health intelligences and be an ally and help to educate you about your options. And I want you to know that you're not going to be alone. And I know this is scary, but we're going to do this together and we're going to ask the mystery to support us and help us and give you signs and synchronicities and inner knowings and dreams and emotional intelligence and somatic intelligence. And I'll help you with the mental intelligence piece. And I'm going to trust your intuitive intelligence. And we're going to do this together. And I'll tell you, people cry every time when you do that after you've given them a scary diagnosis because their fear dissipates a bit and they realize they're not alone. And we can call in that spirituality. And it's real. It is real. It's not magical thinking. It is real that when we help people let go of that grasping at, I have to get cured. I can't die. Like that. Talk about letting go of being a mom, asking a cancer patient to let go of the desire to be cured, which is after, which is, you know, part of what Bill Bankston and I have t spent 10 years talking about. Like that is not easy. And we can't spiritually bypass it. We have to acknowledge that asking people to practice that kind of surrender is an emotionally difficult experience. We have to let them move that fear and grief and disappointment and all of that. Like a lot of people use let go, just let go and let God as a spiritual bypass. And that is not how I practice it. It is like put it in the God box and move all those emotions. And I can't explain why or how, and there's no science around it, but I can tell you anecdotally, that's the sweet spot. And that's the difference between intention and attention. I, I, I love that. I love that. So, so if that's surrender. Can you briefly walk us through the other five? <laughs> well, so I didn't put, I originally wanted to put surrender as step one in the new mind over medicine, but one of my doctors in my program, she's actually a public health doctor from New Zealand and she's had a chronic illness and she's very type A. And she has really tried everything to try to get better. And she said, Lisa, you can't make it step one. You have to make it step two because she said, okay. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't <laughs> have even, she said, you wouldn't have even got me on the journey if you hadn't helped me believe there was po the possibility of relief of my suffering. I had to believe that healing was possible first. And then you had me hooked. And we had to treat, we had to treat the traumas that made her not believe that first. And then because she had a lot of what we might call limiting beliefs, I would call them traumatized beliefs. And we had to do the trauma work to treat those beliefs first in order for her to actually have an opening into the uncertainty that when we, as I wrote in the fear cure, you know, when we enter into the terrain of uncertainty, anything can happen. 
And there's a portal there. So if we're certain that we're not going to get cured, we're certain because the doctor said you have a, you know, 5% six month survival, you're going to die, get your affairs in order. That's the nocebo effect. That is a medical curse. And I'm not a fan of that. I teach all of our doctors the good way to give bad news. That is the opposite. It is, if anything, placebo and not nocebo. And again, not with mad, not with magical thinking, not with denial, but with entering that portal of we don't know, we're entering the mystery. We don't know what could happen. But one of the things that could happen is you could be cured. And here's a case study of a spontaneous remission of somebody who had your exact diagnosis that got cured without medical treatment. And we also have medical treatment and, you know, we don't know. So that's the first step is the believe that healing is possible. And then the second step is to surrender to this part of you that I call your inner pilot light. That is this spirit, this incorruptible spot of grace where we were first touched by God and which can be the conductor of our whole health intelligences and our traumatized inner children. And then step three is creating a circle of healing. So I called it the healing roundtable in Mind Over Medicine, where who is going to be in our circle of healing? Because we can heal ourselves. Our bodies are equipped to self-repair, but we, and we can't do it alone. We absolutely have to let go of that story of rugged individualism, like I can heal myself. Again, very grandiose, very inflated. And that's what Lord's really taught me. Like, no, we can't heal ourselves. We need each other so that the body can self-repair. We need other people to co-regulate our dysregulated nervous systems because being sick is scary and the fear can make us sick, as I wrote about in The Fear Cure. So we need a community of people that's going to support us. I'm working on a whole nonprofit project to try to make that free and available to anybody, sort of like 12-step programs for anybody who's in recovery from illness, injury, or trauma and can't necessarily afford the privileges that I've had on my journey. So that's healatlast.org. If anybody wants to get on the mailing list, we're still getting gearing up. We just got our first $100,000 grant. If anybody wants to give us more grants, we welcome them, and we're working on that. But that's part of the intention of Heal at Last, is that we need those circles of healing. And that is going to include maybe your doctor, your therapist, your acupuncturist, your yoga teacher, your spiritual teacher, and also maybe your best friend or somebody who doesn't have an agenda for you. And I would say, get rid of anybody who thinks they know what's best for you better than you. Like absolutely let people educate you about your options and teach your mental intelligence what's possible. But if anybody else is trying to interfere with your healing journey and control you, that's not the way. So I get very annoyed with people who are like, what do you do if you're trying to convince your brother that he should be doing the six steps to healing yourself and he's not available for that. I'm like, then you treat the trauma in you that makes you think you have any business controlling his healing journey because it is none of your business and deal with the part of you that's maybe scared he's going to die and treat yourself because you just want to support his healing journey, not don't interfere. Like, yeah. So we can educate people, but we can't control people. It's not ethical. So I would get rid of anybody who is trying to control your healing journey and only include people who are co-regulating your nervous system and trusting that you know what's best for you and that you can navigate those four whole health intelligences with good allies and good doctors and good therapists and good experts. 
And then step four is the same as in Mind Over Medicine. It's diagnosing the root cause of your illness, which often is a traumatic root or a lifestyle root. Something like, you know, if this is why, like, you know, people go to meditation retreats and they get their blood pressure down and they get into the parasympathetic and they're in that ventral vagal place of healing, restoration, connection um, in their nervous system. And then they go back to their toxic marriage and their soul-sucking job and, you know, an out-of-control environment and they're, you know, they're, they're back with, they're symptomatic again. So we have to treat the traumas that make us tolerate abusive dynamics. And oft, usually that's a kind of boundary wounding that we've had our, our boundaries wounded. I've just written another book called The Boundaries Handbook. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I literally just wrote it for a friend of mine with wounded boundaries who was like, you've been in therapy a long time. You seem to know a thing or two about boundaries. Will you help me? And I literally sat down in six weeks and wrote 100,000 words on healthy boundaries. No joke. It was an absolute labor of love. I've never written a book for one person. It was a love letter to a beloved friend who is really severely boundary wounded. And so a lot of people, their root cause has to do with their boundary wounding, and we have to treat those wounded boundaries in order to be able to get healthier boundaries so that we can have healthier relationships and healthier work life and healthier sex life and all of those sorts of things. So that root cause work really is the hardest part. I was really afraid to write about it in Mind Over Medicine because I don't believe anybody should be doing root cause work without facilitation, without a doctor or a therapist who's been trained in doing root cause work, because it's, it can be very traumatic to do so without co-regulative support. So I highly recommend step four, you have an expert. And step five is writing the prescription for yourself, just like in Mind Over Medicine. And that is an, a plan of care, a comprehensive, holistic, bridging the world's plan of care that is guided by all four of your intelligences. And for some people, it's only the next right step. Because again, if we put something in the God box and we're in that place of true, humble surrender, all we have to know is the next right step. And then we have to have the courage to take it. And Sometimes on my journey, all I've known is like one small actionable thing that I can do within the next two weeks. And then when I do it, I get the next right step. And then when I do it, I get the next right step. But some type A people get like a 10 page prescription of like, here's every stone in the whole healthcare, and here's everything that I need to do to address every stone. And they love that. And it makes them feel more in control. And it's really calms their nervous system to have a plan. Other people, it's too overwhelming and too stressful. So that's step five. And then step six is new. <laughs> that was not in the original Mind Over Medicine because I didn't figure out step six until I started teaching the six steps in groups because I was always doing my work one-on-one -on -one and I realized I was actually doing step six myself as the facilitator with the, the patient. But step six is treat your resistance. In other words, when I was teaching Mind Over Medicine in groups, I'd have 100 people in a room and 100 sick people, and we're all doing the six steps together. And we'd get to step five, and they'd write their prescription, and I'd say, okay, let's pretend we lived in a magical universe where we could be guaranteed that if you did everything on your prescription, you'd be cured. How many of you are going to go home and do it? And it would be like half. And I'd say, okay, no shaming at all, but like the rest of you, stand up. I want to know what's going on. And they would say, I can't leave my soul-sucking marriage. I can't quit my job. How will I make any money? 
I can't move to Santa Fe and go to art school because I'm a mother. And so they'd have, and then they'd say things like, well, if I got cured, I wouldn't get my disability check. And I like getting my disability check. Or if I got, you know, my husband used to beat me, but when I got sick, he quit beating me. So I need to stay sick so that I don't get beaten. And I realized that people were, and I'm very careful with using this word. I was going to, I don't even want to use it now. <laughs> I have a silencer part coming in. The traditional word we use is secondary gain, where somebody is actually getting an, really important needs met from being sick. And so a lot of the work that we have to do is to help people figure out how to get those core needs met because they're very, very important needs. And I'm not saying anybody is creating their illness or making it up or intentionally malingering or anything like that. But when I worked with patients one-on-one, I would work with them really honestly about working with the fears and doing internal family systems work to work with the parts that are scared because those parts have legitimate concerns and we have to, we don't want to ignore things like money and taking good care of the children and practicalities and being sensible and critical thinking and all of that. But also getting to the root of if somebody is getting some unconscious benefit from being sick, helping them, and this really requires expert facilitation, helping them be creative about other way. How else could you make money other than your disability check? Like I get that's a very important protective part that is getting your needs met financially by getting a disability check. But like, what if you quit that job and did a dif- different job that you really loved that was really in, in line with your purpose? And maybe it's because now that your illness isn't here, you can actually, you know, you've been to hell and back. Maybe you're going to be a healer and you're going to be helping people who are still in hell get to the other side of that and helping them get a little bit excited about like the possibilities of what could happen if they didn't, if they weren't sick, how else could they get their needs for love and connection, their needs for attention, their needs for approval, their needs for money, their needs for saying no. Because again, if we can't say no with our good boundaries, then we might have to, you know, have a migraine in order to not go to our toxic mother's house or whatever. So it's very delicate though. So it, it, it is delicate, but I think delicate. it's an important, I think it's an important point. And I think it takes a lot of work to develop that awareness, you know, on one hand, when illness strikes or adversity strikes, you know, it's important to, to do the work and try to identify the root cause to yeah. take a step back and say, okay, what's the lesson here? And then, yeah. and then also in that process, sometimes you will find, I have found there's no answer and you got to lock it in the, I don't know drawer where, Hey, I did the work, I don't, you know, and you know what, there is this unknown and I'm going to put it in the, I don't know drawer and lock it away and move on because sometimes things happen and they don't make sense. Absolutely. And sometimes things happen that have nothing to do with psycho-spiritual trauma or anything like that. Like sometimes we're sick because we live next door to a toxic waste dump or we're born with two, two copies of a recessive cystic fibrosis gene. So there are lots or and this was really made clear to me during the past two years. Some people are sick because of social injustices that are systemic that are not individual at all. Like I, I have a hypothesis that there is a very good reason why BIPOC, you know, black and indigenous people of color w- were, had significantly worse outcomes when they got COVID 
than other people, than white people, for example. And I really believe that's in part because of the collective trauma of being on the receiving end of the systemic racism and genocide and colonization and all of these horrible systemic traumas that make the nervous systems of BIPOC much more vulnerable to, you know, immune system dysregulation, nervous system dysregulation, you know, microbiome dysregulation, like all, all kinds of different ways in which the body is at higher risk of having chronic inflammation as a background. And then you add a, a virus like COVID and now you've got an, a massive inflammatory reaction in an already inflamed system as a result of a social justice issue. And if you if that same person has childhood trauma or a high adverse childhood experience score, which is common in those populations, then you've, you know, now the background chronic inflammation, which has been linked to every illness, is through the roof. You know, and that's tragic. It's tragic. So that's part of why I've been such an activist for social justice causes and health equity for the past two years, especially. I mean, I, I come from a family of social justice activists, but especially during the pandemic, I've been kind of a pain in the ass with my <laughs> relentlessness around calling out injustices in the new age world and things like that. So let's close on a high note. Lots going <laughs> yeah, on. Let, let, no, 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 but beyond that, you know, there's lots going on in the world. Very easy to just look at the news and feel terrible. With all yeah. that said, I also think there's lots to look at the news and feel great. Leave us with some hope. And for anyone listening who, you know, maybe wants to develop that awareness, what's like the one thing, you know, give us some hope. What's the one thing that everyone can do to develop that awareness? We're all looking for to become better healers, better people. Give us some hope. Well, I hope that my nonprofit work is going to give people hope. It's called Heal at Last. We are, and, and I think anybody can do this. This is something, we're going to start by leading these groups with trained cutting-edge trauma therapists while we get the model right. But even if people just create a healing circle in their own, I just did this at Esalen, pinch hitting for a sick healer who had a booked workshop at Esalen. They asked me to come down on two days notice and take over. And we showed them, we showed them in the workshop, look, we're going to put you in groups of, you know, six to 10 people. And we're going to show you that you can do this on your own. You don't need an expensive healer. You don't need you know, you might need expert healing for some of those like step four and step six processes, but there's a tremendous amount of benefit that you can get just from getting in a circle and putting that 5% intention on what is wanted for healing in this circle and putting the 95% attention on our open hearts and allowing that healing gift that we all have access to, to move through us towards the person in the center of the circle who is the object of healing. Any, anybody can do this. And we're going to try to leverage that and make it more than that. We're going to try to create circles of healing that are by donation only for anybody who identifies as being in recovery for illness, injury, or trauma. And we're going to be doing IFS work and singing and dancing and group healing and sort of in, in sacred medicine, we call it sort of energy transfusions and then filling the, um, treating the leaks. And so I think that's incredibly hopeful. And we have people with money that are wanting to fund us. 
and we have incredibly awesome unicorn level therapists who are wanting to be group leaders. And we have a bunch of passionate social justice activists that are wanting to make sure that it's as available as 12 step, like that if you need to go every day to have a community of healing, then to, to help you hold that believing that there can be some relief and tools that you can use, like that's exciting. That's exciting for me. And it's, I believe it's doable. Maybe I have a part that's sort of like relentlessly optimistic and maybe even a little delusional in my sort of visionary optimism. But part of why I talk about it is because who knows who's going to be listening, who can move needle, move the, you know, the puppet strings of the universe to try to make that happen. Because I really believe in health equity. And I don't think that the kind of things that we do at Mind Body Green should be a luxury good. I believe that everybody should be able to have access. I, I actually have a huge trigger around that. Like healing and spirituality should never be a luxury good. It should be absolutely ec equitable for everybody. And so we're trying to make it happen. And I think that's really hopeful. And I also, you know, in, in internal family systems, we call it being hope merchants for hopeless parts. Like sometimes we have hopeless parts. And sometimes we need somebody to just say, you know what, I sincerely believe that if you're willing to work with maybe some parts that were hurt in childhood and maybe help bring the nervous system more into that ventral vagal place that we can be when we're in a circle of healing, we don't have to go to Lourdes. We can do this in our living rooms and we can open our hearts and take off our masks and be more vulnerable. And Brene Brown's done so much work around that and allow ourselves to do our trauma healing work together. But that can get heavy. So I also believe we need to do the things that uplift us. And I use art and creativity in my work a lot. I use dance and yoga and prayer and group healing and singing and all of those things that are really kind of bliss energies. Like we get that ecstatic hit from doing those things. And if we only do them without touching our traumas, we're spiritual bypassing. But if we do like intentional practices to lift us up so that we are resourced, to be able to dive deep and do the trauma healing. And we do that together. And we, uh, here, can I show you a painting? I just made this painting to represent, can you see it? I can. I don't know, for those who are listening, who cannot see it, it is very beautiful. <laughs> and you can go to YouTube and see it, but it is a very beautiful, is that uh, Well, it says, it's whales and it says dive whales. deep. Yeah, and I'm going to show you the other one for anybody who's on YouTube. I made another painting from the the bird from the cover of the New Mind Over Medicine called Rise oh, Up. Wow. So it's like rise up, dive deep. That's another paradox of healing is we need these energy transfusion practices to help us rise up. And then we have to be brave and bold and resilient so we can dive deep like the whales. And the, But the whales also, they dive deep and then they come to the surface. And they splash around and they get a breath of fresh air and they smack their tails and they play with each other and then they go back down deep. And that's where they make a lot of progress is when they're down deep. So we, we can do the same. We can make a lot of progress when we go down deep, but we can't stay down there. We have to come back up and do our spiritual practices and be together and play and uplift our energy and get a nice transfusion. And then, you know, if we start feeling depleted on life force, we just fill ourselves up and then we're tanked up we could go back down i love it we'll close there lissa thank you so much oh my gosh it's such a pleasure thank you for having me and thank you to all of your listeners who have been just so supportive of me 
and my work for over all these years into Mind Body Green for all of your support of my work too. Thank you.